Uh, I'm Chris Avina with American Outdoor News. Today we're here with Mike Arnold, the author of Bring Back the Lions and Wildlife Biologist. Mike, thank you so much for coming on again. Oh, thank you, Chris. I always enjoy my time with you, uh, especially if we're um, drinking adult beverages. Yeah, you know, it was great to see you back in January at the uh, yeah. Dallas Safari Club convention. And, um, you know, uh, it was good to catch up and, and catch in a little bit more of a casual uh, yeah. type of atmosphere. Absolutely. Yep. So you've had a lot going on since we last spoke. Uh, you flew to Africa again. Yeah. And... Um, you were uh, you were on a Cape Buffalo hunt, among other things. So, uh, yeah. Tell me a little bit about how you got there, what you did there, and uh, where we go from here. Yeah, thank you. Yes. Uh, so I'm to take a, a little bit of a step back. So you're right. I, I put out Bringing Back the Lions, the book last year, July 2022. It doesn't seem like it's been could be that long ago. And that book is doing really well. And it focuses on Katata 11, as you know, uh -huh. which is a hunting concession in Mozambique. While I wrote that book, and my wife gives me a hard time about this, she said, can't you just enjoy what you're doing and put it out there like a book? Uh, this was my fifth book, but she said, and just enjoy it for a while. And I said, well, I enjoy it without thinking about another book. Well, while I was writing that, I realized that I need to, to think about conservation through trophy hunting, conservation through international hunting broadly, not mm -hmm. just Mozambique, uh, but to do it in developed countries and developing countries. So North America uh, and uh, in Mexico and in Europe and all, you know, Central Asia and that sort of thing. And of course, in Africa. So in March, the trip that you alluded to, I went to Cameroon because I wanted to see a totally different uh, setting. Number one, I've always wanted to go to Cameroon and hunt. Okay, I'm sure. a passionate hunter. But for the book and for for other articles, uh, some of which are going to appear in American Outdoor News, as you yes, know. Yes, they do. <laughs> <laughs> from this trip. But uh, I put together this safari in Cameroon and the savanna, what they call the savanna area, which is a mixed forest grassland. It's not an out of Africa kind of savanna that maybe a lot of folks would think about. Yeah. One of the species that I did want to hunt there, one of the animals was a buffalo. Uh, and it's a West African uh, savanna buffalo is the SCI designation for it. And it is one of these that doesn't have a big boss, uh, like a Cape buffalo. Uh, its horns are smaller. Uh, body size is smaller as you go from the south, and many of your listeners, viewers will know this, but as you, and I know you do, as you go from the south in Africa and you move up towards the equator and you curve left, you know, you go west, yep. <laughs> uh, you see that transition from the big, black, burly, you know, Cape Buffalo that we think, you and I think about, and that both of us have, have taken all the way over to the dwarf forest buffalo, which is not what I hunted. Uh, it's it's transitional form that I hunted. I And uh, when I was in Cameroon, I told my PH when I arrived, it was one of the species that we hunted, one of the animals. I said, I, I want a buffalo as red as my hair. 
And uh, fortunately, I still have red hair. And to <laughs> answer the question that keeps being, because I'm 65, answer the question that people ask me all the time. No, I do not color my hair. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> this is genetics, okay? My mama's hair color, and it, it just had gone gray yet. But uh, he said, well, we can we can get you a red buffalo. And so they've, they have this mixture. It's sort of like, though, I'll be honest. It's sort of like me going out wanting a cinnamon-colored black bear. <laughs> okay. Okay, so you have those color phases in Buffalo in that area. You have black. You have in between brown, red, like my hair color, to these black ones, to the red. Anyway, mixed herds. But the red ones normally uh, in this area are smaller than the black ones. So there's some kind of, I'm a geneticist, I'm a conservation geneticist, conservation biologist. And so, uh, in fact, I'm talking to you from the University of Georgia's department head's office, Department of Genetics, because that's what I'm doing right now. I went nuts and told them I would do this for a little while. That's why I'm wearing a sports jacket, by the way. I don't hunt in this, just so everybody knows. <laughs> uh, but anyway, so... Uh, the genetics is that you get these mixtures and so you have a genetic variation obviously there, and you get red buffaloes and black buffaloes and I just the red ones they have these blonde hairs coming out of their ears they have blonde highlights all over their you know what we would you know think of as their mane and and it's they're just gorgeous and that's why I wanted one and sure enough you know we busted a lot of herds the black ones normally were larger. My pH did not shoot me for turning down big, bigger, <laughs> larger animals. Yeah, finally got the red one, and he's he's gorgeous. Well, there's that misconception that uh, the Cape buffalo is the big black mm -hmm. Cape buffalo, black death. Yep. Uh, but there are many different subspecies. Yep. So to speak, of the Cape buffalo within Africa, there's uh, probably at least half a dozen, if I'm not mistaken. That's correct. You're no, you're exactly right, and that's that transition. You know, you get them. So the one that I took in Mozambique, big old black thing that uh, with big boss and that sort of uh, look to them, what we call a phenotype in science, but that look, that body form. Um, and then you, once again, all the way over to the far western reaches in those dense tropical jungles where you get that dwarf buffalo. Someone asked me when they saw the photo of my red buffalo, the savannah buffalo, was, is that a dwarf forest buffalo? And I said, oh, no, 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 no. It's still much larger than a dwarf forest buffalo. And also it was in totally wrong area. So, yeah. And now, while you were there, you started a rhino as well. No, no, we didn't. We didn't do rhino work there. However, when we go back in June, <laughs> so my wife and I are going back to Africa in June. We're going we're flying into Johannesburg, and then we're going to Mozambique to Katata Eleven, where I wrote uh, what I wrote the book about. And we're doing an update for Sports Afield. We've been asked to do an update on what they call the cats of Katata 11. So they've done two reintroductions that you and oh, I have talked about. So the lions and the cheetahs. And they wanted, Sports Afield covered the first story about them putting the lions in. And then they put the cheetahs in. 
and 21, uh, 21, 22, sorry. And um, so they want us to go back to Katata 11 and write about what's going on with the cats. And so we're going to do that. Then we're coming back to South Africa where I'm going to hunt in the Eastern Cape, do a little bit of hunting for birds and uh, bushbuck and black wildebeest, but also research for this, this new book that's this global look at uh, how we do conservation through hunting. Then we go to the Kalahari area of South Africa, and that's where we'll be I was asked to come in and we'll be working with a set of scientists mm -hmm. on a huge property over there that has black and white rhino. And that's oh, wow. dart rhino. You and I have talked about this. I don't know if they're going to let me hold the dart gun or not. <laughs> well, hopefully they will, but I'm not sure. You know, I, I've uh, never shot a dart gun in my life. So we'll, we'll see. It's, it's, you know, it's not a big deal shooting the dart gun. It's pretty accurate, and it's like shooting a paintball gun. And Well, you've you know, done it. You did a green rhino hunt, and so that's, uh, that's cool. I did, and it's kind of funny because I never hunted big game like that before. Hmm. And, uh, or, or dangerous game. Um, so that was my first. Uh, foray into the uh, big five or any type of dangerous game aside from black bear. Uh, these things are huge. So, you know, needless to say, I was a little nervous going in and um, I, I hunted at Tam Safaris. Uh, I was with my friend uh, Lorraine Lawrence who hunted with me as well. And um, Mike Miller was our cameraman. So, <laughs> <laughs> we see two, you know, we come through the brush up through this creek and, you know, the high, high grass and whatnot. We make our way through the thorn bushes and we see these two rhino. Mm. So the uh, PH tells me, whispers, you know, taps me on the shoulder, whispers, shoot the one on the left. <laughs> and I'm hearing like Charlie Brown's teacher going, wah, wah, wah. <laughs> So I shot the one on the right. <laughs> I had a better shot. There you go. Hey, it went down. I saw the photo. That was a beautiful animal. It really was. And, you know, it's funny. The trackers went after it. And we went back to the truck. We hopped into the back. And, you know, we followed the trackers. They were on horseback. And when we got there, the second rhino was not leaving his friend. Oh. It was standing guard. And, you know, the... uh Drug was taking effect, and he was starting to go down. And as we pulled up, I'm sitting at the gate where the ladder is, and it's open. And here comes this rhino charging at the charging, <laughs> charging at the truck right where I'm sitting. So I start pushing over a little bit, and it's me, Mike, and Lorraine. I start pushing over a little bit. Mike nudges over. Lorraine nudges over. And it does a false charge, and it backs off and charges again. Comes a little closer, and it's probably within three feet. And I'm pushing to the to the <laughs> side, and Mike's like, "Where do you want me to go?" I'm like, "I don't <laughs> care, man." Okay, I think there's an object lesson lesson here, Chris. Don't pay them before you go out to hunt the thing. Make sure, <laughs> sure they're gonna get the money afterwards, or or you're not worth anything. I think that's the take home message. Pretty here. much, pretty much. But it was funny. It was really funny, uh, and uh, and it was a good time. You know, it was the same as a, a regular hunt. 
Yeah. Um, you know, except with a dart gun, yeah, sure. as you know, the why not don't go down right away. Yeah. So uh, I think you're in for a treat. It's pretty exciting, as you know. And, um, you know, it's uh, we got to get, you know, horn shavings and blood samples and hair samples and whatnot, which, you know, it's a conservation hunt. You do what you need to do. Yep. I'm really looking forward to it. Unlike you, I have never seen uh, rhinos of either one of those species in the wild. So this is going to be brand new for me as a biologist as well. I'm really excited, really, really excited to experience these animals. And the only reason they're there and the only reason that they're alive and still have their horns is because of uh, hunters, you know, mm -hmm. funding this. And occasionally they'll have someone come in and take one of the one of the older really older males of black or white from this property, but it's funded. only funded, you know? Well, you know, it's, uh, there's a lot of money being poured into conservation of the rhino. Anti-poaching uh, yep. uh, efforts are, are really strong. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, th there's no medicinal purposes for them to steal the horn. Yeah. It, it don't do anything. Yep. Absolutely. I mean, and the the sad part about it is one of the one of the questions I had for the guys and gals in Katata Eleven was, what are the next species that you're going to want to reintroduce here? And one of those, and and you have to realize that, uh, remind your your listeners that the reintroductions aren't of non-native species like the cheetahs and lions were there in this area in Katata Eleven. Mm -hmm. Uh, black rhinos were there and that's one of the species they're looking at but they said you know we don't have the infrastructure yet it's going to because you really have to have an army to yeah. protect them from uh, and not, you know from the poachers and from because the poaching teams are hired by international people uh, quite a lot of the money is coming from China and it's yeah. known uh, that the money pours in for poaching of elephants, poaching of rhinos, etc., from China, and that's big money. I mean, we're we're the, we're talking hundreds of millions of dollars. The the African governments made a huge mistake a couple of years back. They mm -hmm. confiscated a ton of elephant ivory and rhino horns, and I mean, it was piles of it. Yeah. And they, they burned it. I know. If they put that out on the market, flooded the market, the values would go down, the mm. demand would go down. Right. And the poachers say, hey, we're not making money doing this anymore. What are we going to do next? Yeah. That that could have you know alleviated the problem, right? Well, not completely, but it would have made a huge dent in it. It could have easily um, made um, it, it also it made a huge difference in that particular time frame. But Chris, you and I also know that it could have led to a different model, right? Of these governments realizing, okay, when yeah. we do this, we can get scads of money in for our conservation efforts and into our 
uh, funds for our hunting concessions and national parks and all of these sorts of things to protect them from wood poaching or whatever it happens to be that they need to do. But the other thing, though, the sad part about this is much of why they did that, much of the motivation was because of radical animal rights activists in the West. From our country, from Europe, from England, et cetera, a lot of pressure comes on these countries. And basically the pressure is, well, if you don't do what we tell you to, your tourism is going to go away. And that's a false dichotomy because the real important tourism for most of those countries, for many of those countries, is from hunters. We bring in so many more dollars than photographic tourism will ever do. And, you know, that the green, quote unquote, tourism of the animal rights activists just don't bring in that kind of money. So it's a false economy, but that's the threat that is over there. Simple truth of the matter is these uh, animal rights groups, they're not as informed as uh, we as hunters are. We're really the boots on the ground and they're raising millions of dollars. And they're putting it into hate campaigns. None of that money goes into the conservation that we put in. Yeah. Well, they're losing. Uh, the thing about it is that, and that's what I, you know, tried to explain. And you've read the book. I mean, I've highlighted how for non-hunters, not anti-hunters, but for non-hunters in particular in that first book, how the hunting dollars, how, where do they go? You know, do, are hunters really only coming over and killing an animal, lopping the head off and heading home, you know, and of course that's what we do. And, you know, where does the money go? Why does it work? Why does this model work as opposed to photographic tourism, for example, that doesn't work? It tears up more land. And as a biologist and scientist, I can talk to people about carbon footprints and say, look, hunting does leaves no carbon footprint behind because you have to keep the habitats intact to have the animals there for the, uh, you know, few hunters that come through compared to photographic tourism. Sure. But the, the thing about it is that what people come to understand when we start to explain this is, oh, okay, I see how the money develops communities and causes those communities, the local communities, to want to conserve their animals and plants and all these different habitats. Because I know it sounds crass at lump, some level, but it really is a true statement. If it pays, it stays. And, you know, for those developing countries that are hurting for money, to prove to them and to show them what that economy looks like with hunters coming through, it amazes them. And they realize, holy smokes, you know, we can develop what is essentially a middle class situation for our people in these areas compared to their countrymen and women elsewhere. Once that becomes evident and apparent to them, they're very intelligent, very smart, and they go, this is what we want. And they know how to, you know, they know how to take care of their own resources. That's the bottom line. The animal rights activists do not. Well, I... I... (laughs) You know, like I said, they're, they're not educated the way, you know, the the uh, people with the boots on the ground are. 
Exactly. Um, they have hands-on experience. They're not just keyboard warriors. Yep, absolutely. So um, bring back the Lions. Is there going to be a second part or a next book coming? There is a next book coming. Um, now, I, I'm going to tell you, I was on Larry Wysoon's podcast uh, last week. I guess it was. We recorded one. And he said, so what's the title of your new book, Mike, that you're working <laughs> on right now? And I said, well, I'm going to tell you what my title is. It's the first part of the title. But I'll tell you that two editors that I've spoken with and my book agent hate my title. So I don't think it's going to last. <laughs> and Larry just laughed at me and said, well, tell us anyway. I call it Many Paths to Eden. And what I meant by that uh, initially, so it's a placeholder. for. <laughs> but anyway, it's uh, what I mean by that is that there's a lot of models used around the world, whether we're in developed countries like the U.S., or developing countries like Cameroon, but they all lead to ecological restoration, ecosystem restoration, and uh, conservation, and then community uplift, people being having their quality of life improved. Sure. So what I'm doing is right now is I'm gathering, I'm doing the research. It's taken a little bit longer than the Katata 11 book, just simply because I have to get to various areas in the in the world. But I have gotten to most of them so far. And now we'll go back to South Africa, look at, for example, in the Eastern Cape, you, you know South Africa well. But in the Eastern Cape, I'm looking at a situation where it's low fence and so I'll there. It's low fence. We're going to go up into the mountains and hunt birds as well, uh, gray wing and other species of birds. But we're looking at a mixed agricultural system and game farming, if you will. Now it's low fence, so there's game are hopping back and forth, obviously, anywhere they want to go. But I wanted to look at a situation where in South Africa, I already have a high fence situation that was gorgeous. Blocrons in the Eastern Cape. I recommend it to anybody. It's 100,000 acres of, you don't ever see the fence, but it's a beautiful yeah. area. But the, so I have that as an example, but this is a mixture that's different the way they do it. And then of course, we'll go to the Kalahari, mm -hmm. that property, which is goodness, 250,000 acres, maybe something like that. It is high fenced to protect the rhino, right? Yeah. And so that's a situation that's very different, but it's also funded by hunters. So I'm doing that and we have Cameroon and we have the Yucatan and we have this. And then in October, uh, uh, many of your viewers and uh, listeners will probably write me letters and ask me if I'm gone crazy, but we're going to Pakistan. Oh, for wow. Weeks. Yeah. Now, that's exciting. It, it is. And we're going to go all the way from the Thar Desert uh, in the far south all the way through to the Himalayas. And our host there is a hunter. He is also uh, lives in Karachi, he and his wife. He's also uh, owns a pharmaceutical company. He knows all these people. He does community outreach all the time. Uh, I'll hunt a little bit while I'm there. 
for one of the uh, antelope species. Mm -hmm. uh, so we'll, we'll, it's called the Indian gazelle, but it's in Pakistan. So I'll hunt for the Chinkara is the, is the other name for it. Well, they're but bordering we'll countries both. anyway, Pakistan. Uh -huh. They're bordering countries anyway, uh, Pakistan oh, and India. Absolutely. And it's in the, it's in that area in the Punjab where, where I'll be hunting. So uh, we'll do that. We're going to be looking at, because I wanted a Central Asian example, you know, as well. And thought about Tajikistan. That didn't really work out, but Pakistan did. And I, I was amazed, you know, that we actually I didn't I didn't see myself going to Pakistan. Let's just put it that way. But yeah. this has worked out real well. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the uh, the high fence, and a lot of people say, "Ah, I don't want to hunt high fence." Mm -hmm. Hundred thousand acres. <laughs> you don't. Yeah. You don't. Well, <laughs> that's the silly part. And also, you and I both know. So, one of the animals that was my first safari. I went. I did go up into the mountains and hunt a Val Reebok that was not in a fenced area because they don't occur in fenced areas. That was actually my first species of African animal that I that I uh, shot while I was there was volley. But the thing about it is I would encourage anyone who wanted to go across and hunt if if the property is of sufficient size and so many of them are so large like this yeah. one blah blah. Right. 50, and 50, 100,000, 200,000 acres. You it's, never see the fence. I can't even, I mean, yeah. I, I hunted high fence. It was 75,000 acres. It was, yep. you didn't see fences. Well, <laughs> no, and the, the Impala Ram that I that I shot while I was there on in the fenced area, we were driving down a road and uh, this road happened to bisect two sections that were you know 60,000 and 40,000 but anyway it doesn't matter but anyway there were high fences on either side and we watched this Impala Ram and all his use his harem they jumped over one high fence ran across the road jumped over the other high fence <laughs> so it was, yep. you know it doesn't really stop all these animals uh, no, some, some don't do that but most of them can absolutely jump these fences so I'm actually, uh, as we speak, I'm looking up. Long Island is almost 900,000 acres. Mm. So some of these concessions are almost a, a quarter mm -hmm. or an eighth of Long Island. Absolutely. They're humongous. <laughs> Once again, you know, I mean, if you if you think about it, um, you, you just, well, I can, I can attest to the fact without, unless we tried, we would never see the fence. I mean, yeah. you, you, just, you can't cover the area. Um, you know, the concession in Cameroon was, uh, about the size. Now it's not fenced obviously, but it's about the size of the Blocron's property and we covered so small of an amount of that Cameroon concession that I was just on and safari on in and March. I mean, we don't have a, I don't think most of us have a conception of what these prop, the size of these properties, like you said. Well, you know, my hunting club was 600 acres. Yeah. <laughs> Hey, it was nothing compared to these places. <laughs> no, no, 
No, it's it's really not. I mean, you drive in and and you're there. You know, you're on your self-contained property, and it's it's wonderful. And also, the people have to understand that someplace like South Africa that has these fenced properties, the reason they're fenced is to protect the wildlife sure. and protect to off oftentimes to protect the local and inha human inhabitants as well because these properties can have cheetahs they can have all sorts of different things on them mm -hmm. that you don't want uh disturbing the agricultural situations that you know the chickens the ducks the goats the cattle the whatever and so the fencing the privatization of this has number one led to explosions in numbers of animals not just game animals we're talking about songbirds and raptors you know hawks and whatever else and all of these different things uh, animals and plants that are not hunted or collected so it's been a boon for the eco ecological systems there well, again that's the trickle down effect it's, it it's is part it of is. the conservation that we do Yep, and the employment of the locals and the schooling of the locals, as you will have seen, and you know where you were, and the medical treatment that they have because of the hundred dollars going in is just phenomenal. Yep. And uh, so, what's next for you, Mike? Well, I've I've gotten you out to October, but I'm actually working on a trip to Spain, uh, where I'll probably hunt mouflon. Oh, beautiful! Possibly chamois. Uh, yeah, I know. I got to have some strong 25-year-old uh, guide to lug me up the hills, I think, is what I told them <laughs> over there. I'm not sure I'm up to uh, climbing those mountains. I'll, I'll climb the mountains. So uh, that is maybe this fall as well. Uh, we're working on that right now. I'm working with a conservation research organization over there, but it's a conservation research organization that is built on hunters mm. and hunters dollars and they i mean they're the reason that the you know the ibex is back in spain they're the reason the chamois is doing well they're the reason that the mouflon is doing well and they're the reason that many uh the lynx which is not you know hunted they dump partridges out onto these properties for driven hunts that people Quite often, non you know anti hunters will castigate. Oh, these poor birds! Well, those poor birds are driving <laughs> the raptors to uh, increase in numbers that we've never seen before as biologists in these places, bringing them back from extinction. And they're also allowing the European lynx, which is one of the most endangered species in the world, to skyrocket in numbers. Wow. One of the properties went from zero to forty lynxes just because of these. Uh, release where they, you know, have these European driven hunts. Yep. And so the lynxes, obviously, the lynxes were going, holy smokes, look at all the birds. <laughs> uh, you know, yeah. people don't realize that's a lot on one property, though. Absolutely. Oh, it's huge. And once again, they were, they were really predicted to be extinct by now. Mm -hmm. Not extinct by now. And, but they are extinct in those areas where there's nothing to support them, you know, yeah. in terms of food and habitat. So, uh, but anyway, so that's the other thing. Now, from there, shoot, I don't know, Chris, I'm going to be writing, probably send you some more articles until you tell me to stop. 
I'll take all you got to, all, all you, all you want. <laughs> all right. Well, I appreciate your time. Where can we find Bring Back the Lions? So if uh, folks can type in bringingbackthelions.com. Okay. Now just one word, <laughs> bringingbackthelions.com, no spaces. That will take them to the page on my website. And if they order it there, uh, they'll get a signed copy. Now, if they they can also go to Amazon, they can go to their bookstores and order it. Uh, just ask them, you know, type in bringingbackthelions.com. Uh, but if they do that, then they I don't see them, so I don't end up signing them. Okay. So those are the uh, bringingbackthelions.com. Uh, they can get a signed copy, but they can go on to any one of the other sources as well. Well, I, I read your book. It's a great read, really informative, and I highly recommend it. Thank you, sir. All right, Mike, I appreciate your time. Look forward to talking to you again, and uh, good luck on your trip this year. Thank you, Chris. We love our children. We protect them, we guide them, we prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference.